1: From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum, I'm Mina Kim. When Lizzie Stark was 39 years old, she had her ovaries removed after medical tests put her at a high risk of cancer, and the procedure contributed to what she calls her, quote, joyful but fraught relationship with eggs. At the time, Stark was writing a book about the egg, as a food source, yes, but also as a biological triumph, a cultural and mythological symbol, an object of art and an object of obsession. The book is called Egg, A Dozen Overtures, and Lizzie Stark joins us to talk about everything eggs mean to her and to us. Forum is next after this news. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome to Forum. I love how the ordinary becomes extraordinary when you take a moment to really consider it. And that's what happened when I read Lizzie Stark's book Egg. It reminds us that the humble egg is, as she says, an ingenious piece of tech that contains everything a developing embryo needs. It appears in creation myths across cultures. It inspires painters, conceptual artists, countless chefs. And I also learned it was the reason for a Gold Rush-era territorial war on the Farallon Islands. The egg, says Stark, is a universe in a shell. And her new cultural and natural history of the egg is called Egg, A Dozen overtures. Lizzie Stark, welcome to Forum. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Mina. Oh, really glad to have you. And I love how your book starts by inviting us to come into your kitchen, open a carton, take a look at a dozen, as you say, perfect and perfectly protean eggs. <laughs> so I was thinking we should start there with the unpretentious chicken egg, because you made me just see how structurally amazing it is. The yolk, the the white, the shell. So what makes them perfect in your eyes? Help us appreciate what you saw.
2: Well, it's everything a developing chick needs in exactly the right order. Um, So an egg begins with a germinal disc that wends its way down the uh, chicken's oviduct. And you can actually see the germinal disc with your naked eye if you crack an egg into a bowl. When I read this, Like I could not believe it. I immediately went and cracked an egg in the bowl in a bowl. And if you wait a minute, a little pale spot will rise to the top of the yolk. And that is the germinal disc. The DNA, a chicken would be um, a hen would contribute to new offspring. And so that wends its way down the oviduct and then yolk gets attached. And it actually gets attached in concentric circles of light and dark yolk. And if you boil, hard boil an egg and slice it perfectly. Sometimes you get lucky and you can actually see the little layers. And then at the end of that, the yolk is enclosed in this membrane that has two ropey bits attached to it called the chalice. They look a little bit like um, umbilical cords, but they're not. They are a little bit of egg white that tethers the yolk to either end of the eggshell and keeps it suspended in the center. And the white... We talk about egg white like it's just one thing, but it's really um, layers of tight and loose albumin, three layers. So uh, right around the yolk, there's some loose white. Uh, That's the stuff that takes a while to film over if you're making a sunny-side-up egg. And then there's the tight white, which sets up high. Um, Ideally, if you have a fresh egg, it sets up high. If you have a good-quality fresh egg, it sets up high. And then the loose white... And then comes to me, the, in some ways, the most interesting parts of, tech, of the egg as tech, and that is the shell membrane, which is two mesh-like layers of keratin that contain um, the yolk and the white. And when an egg is laid, the shell membrane actually shrinks, and it creates an air pocket near the blunt end of the egg, which is where um, the chicken's head would develop. And uh, it, this aids in gas exchange, but also... When a chick is getting ready to hatch, it pokes through the shell membrane and uses it like a little oxygen tank to get its lungs working so it can burst out of the shell.
1: Yeah, that part was incredible.
2: <laughs> yeah. That
1: that little spot is so important for it to get its lungs functioning before it can pop out.
2: Yes, and some animals, some species of birds have egg, egg tooths, an egg tooth, which is a little horny bump on the beak that... Um, uh, you know, helps the bird punch through all of the things that needs to punch through. Um, and after the shell, mem- the egg membrane, and you'll recognize it as the weird floppy mat thing. You get a peel off, um, like a hard boiled egg, to get to the shiny white underneath. Outside of that, there's the eggshell, which is calcium carbonate um, that has pores in it to aid in gas exchange, and chickens can actually somehow sense um, how much oxygen is in the air. So if you take a chicken to the top of a tall mountain where the air is thinner, it will lay eggs that have more pores so that more oxygen goes to the developing chick. And then the very last layer is a layer that we don't often see in the U.S. because we power wash it off our eggs. But that's the cuticle, which is a waxy layer that helps... um, cut waterproof the egg basically and provides another barrier to microbial entry.
1: So that's so, why we need to refrigerate our eggs.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We power wash it off. And so if there's any bacteria in the egg, we want the bacteria to grow real, real slow. Cause as with all things, the dose makes the poison. Um and so we put uh we put the eggs in the fridge so that the the bacteria don't proliferate.
1: <laughs> and why And how do the shells come in so many different colors?
2: Yeah, that's the result of um, two pigments, scientists think, neither of which I can pronounce very well, but they both begin with B. And one is responsible for the reddish colors, and one is responsible for the um, blue-green type of colors. And then in addition, in some wild bird eggs, um, mama birds will lay eggs that have dark brown dots and pencil squiggles on them. And I was intrigued to learn that um, in the case of many of those birds, Mama Bird has like a signature squiggle uh, <laughs> that's there. So she, it helps her recognize her eggs. Um, unfortunately, that's also why uh, many of, you know, many Guillemot eggs um, became co- real collector's items. You, if you collect collect the egg of one uh, female guillemot bird um, over her lifetime, you can get eggs with the same pattern in all many, uh, many, many hues.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you call the eggs beautiful, and and I would agree with you. But I'm wondering why you think people have been so aesthetically captivated. Um, buy eggs. You talk about how they're a collector's item. What is so captivating about them?
2: I think it has something to do with the fact that eggs are among humanity's oldest f- form of food. Like 99.9% of the world's eggs are edible. And non-poisonous. And you know, even species we think of as herbivores eat them, like bunnies and deers will eat an egg <laughs> if they have the chance. <laughs> um, and so I think it's something primal. Uh, you know, it's a primal it's a primal food source since time immemorial. And also those smooth curvilinear shapes are um, create pleasure circuits in the brain. And there are a few MRI studies from about ten years back that confirmed this. Um, which I thought was just fascinating.
1: You mean that we're hardwired to find them as beautiful as we Yes,
2: do? like people enjoy cur- gently curvilineal, curvilinear objects. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, we've certainly seen eggs um, be the subject of, of paintings. We paint them ourselves. They've definitely inspired a lot of art. And I'm curious, listeners, if eggs have inspired you. Before I read this book, I don't know that I appreciated the egg, but maybe you... Already we're familiar with the incredible power of the delicate egg. And if so, tell us why. Or maybe uh, eggs are special in your family as part of a family tradition or recipe. If they are, you can also tell us that by calling 866-733-6786. You can post on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. You can email forum at kqed.org. And Noel tweets, Soft-boiled in an egg cup with buttered toast. My mom used to cut toast in small pieces for me so I could dip it into the egg. Every time I make it now, it takes me back to childhood. (laughs) You talk about how nostalgic eggs are, too. Not just that we're so drawn to them, hardwired to them, and sort of primal, but they really are the subject of so many childhood memories.
2: Yes, I believe that dish is... um, uh, it's a it's a dippy egg with soldiers and it's got a lot of uh heritage um or there are a lot of people in the UK who uh, enjoyed that as children um and the toast the toast fingers are the soldiers yeah i also had soft cooked eggs on toast when i was a kid but um i'd eat them with a really pretty little spoon my mom had this Um, It was probably a sugar spoon that was gold, and it had like a little inlaid um, teal glass. And I thought that was just the height of um, luxury and
1: fanciness. Yeah, you were so sophisticated. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) And and your book is about so much more than what we do with eggs in terms of cooking them. But it does devote a chapter to just how essential they are, especially to chefs. You quote Jacques Bepin, who says, the egg is to cuisine what the article is to speech. And also um, Kenji lopez Alt, who says they have a mystique because they're so versatile and also sensitive. Do you want to talk a little bit about just how essential they are?
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, so one of the legends is that the, you know, the hundred folds in a chef's toque, Um, are there for every egg dish that the chef has mastered. And, you know, we think about eggs as one ingredient, but really they're three ingredients because you can use the yolk by itself to, you know, thicken custards, make sauces. The yolk has um, uh, some properties of emulsification, so you can get um, oils and liquids to shake hands and get thick with it. And the white um, is also sort of its own ingredient. It's full of these very lean proteins that are all balled up. Um, You could think of the egg white as being like a bag of little yarn balls. And if you apply energy to the yarn balls, whether that's through heat or through whisking, um, they will start to tangle up with each other in different ways. And so you can achieve a, a lot of textures just with egg white. You could think about the difference between an egg white omelet and a meringue cookie. Um, you know, the egg white omelet is going to be probably a little toothy and fairly dense. The meringue is going to be crispy and light. Um, or a cheese souffle is going to be puddingy and very airy, uh, hopefully. Hopefully it didn't fall when you took it out of the oven. Right. Um, and then you can use the, uh, the white and the yolk together. And create very tender and delicious egg dishes from scrambled eggs to quiche and beyond.
1: Yeah, there is so much you could do with egg. But at the same time, what's incredible is how hard it is to get right. We're coming up on a break, but that is definitely an issue when Kenji Lopez-Alt says they're so sensitive. Why is it so hard to get an egg right? (laughs) Too many variables to manipulate
2: <laughs> is the short answer.
1: Yeah, the codian egg. We're talking about the egg with Lucy Stark, author of the book Egg, A Dozen Overtures, and we'll hear your ode to the egg after this break. Stay with us. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow on the show, we'll look at how close we are to a future where driverless cars are the norm. Self-driving taxis are already rolling out on California's roads, so we'll take a closer look as part of our In Transit series. Today, we're talking about the ordinary, extraordinary egg with my guest Lizzie Stark, who's written a cultural and natural history of the egg called Egg, A Dozen Overtures. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation. What have you wondered about the biology of eggs? What's your egg tradition? or ritual? Are they special to you or your family? You can email forum at kqed.org, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at kqed forum, or call us 866- 733-6786 866-733- 6786. And let me go to Greg in Oakland. Hi, Greg, you're on.
4: Hi, good morning. I am a chef, and I am always in the kitchen. We have these infernal battles over two things. One is a chef will say, I can cook an egg without that yolk turning blue on the outside and without the shell sticking when I go to peel it. And it is the biggest argument we ever have. And I would like to know if you have any clues as to why those two
2: things happen
4: and how I can become the best chef in the world <laughs> by knowing how to
1: avoid them. <laughs> <laughs> nice, oh. Craig.
2: Lizzie, well, any ideas? ideas? Yeah. yeah, I definitely have some ideas for you. I think you're talking about hard-boiled eggs probably specifically. And the reason, um, the reason eggs get that blue cast on the outside is because there are, uh, it's a sulfuric reaction between, I think it's like the, maybe the iron and the egg yolk and the something else and the egg white. But w- the longer you cook them together, there's a chemical reaction that happens, and that's what you see. And so cooking your eggs less long is um, would be one way to deal with that. Uh, nice. And the best egg recipe, hard-boiled egg recipe that I have seen is Jake Kenji Lopez-Alt, in his first column for the New York Times, did a double-blind experiment where he hard-boiled more than 700 eggs to determine the best, one, the best way to hard-boil an egg. And the short answer is, um, poke a hole in the blunt end and steam them gently in an inch of water for 11 minutes. Um, but the other answer is that there's just No way. Some eggs just stick to the, the shell sticks to the white more, and there's just nothing you can do about it.
1: Mm. Well, Um, Greg, thanks for the question. Steaming an egg for 11 minutes feels like such a long time to wait to get to the egg.
2: Yes, and you got to cool it down to stop the cooking. I think that's another thing that happens with hard-boiled eggs, is they kind of retain that heat, so there's carryover cooking.
1: Yeah. Well, we've been talking about how beautiful, delicious, and nutritious they are. And of course, eggs are such a staple, as the chefs are also sharing with us that when we can't afford them, or access the number we want, we really feel that absence greatly. I, I know you haven't personally reported on the egg shortage, but uh, do you have any sense of if there's a light at the end of that tunnel, Lizzie Stark?
2: Yeah, well, uh, the egg shortage is caused by a few different things, right? Of course, we've got the bird flu. um, The Ukrainian war is driving up egg prices, I read, because Ukraine produces um, a lot of grain and sunflower seed, which are feeds for the birds. And then there's the transportation backup. Um, The light at the end of the tunnel is that it takes a pullet about five months to begin uh, laying eggs at production, so you know it's been a little while. Um, and but so you you get about a five month lead time.
1: <laughs> yeah. So we're getting a little. We're getting a little yeah. closer. Well, one of the things that was so notable was that when eggs are scarce, people go nuts. <laughs> and I'm thinking of the chapter on the Farallon Island egg war during the yes. Gold Rush. <laughs> Could you tell us a little bit about that and what happened? Sure.
2: Um, so. The population of San Francisco got real big during the gold rush. It went from about, I think, like a 1,000 people in 1848 to 25,000 a year later. And food production couldn't scale up um, that quickly. So there was a shortage of protein in the city and of eggs in particular. Um, there were people in the city keeping, you know, keeping a couple chickens and feeding them on Um, scraps from their kitchen and getting the eggs from it. But commercial chicken farming was really challenging because, again, there was a food scarcity, and that meant not just a scarcity of food for humans, but a scarcity of food to feed to birds. And so during this time, um, the price of eggs skyrocketed. If you were out in the gold fields, you know, a, a fresh chicken egg could cost you $3 and that's not adjusting for inflation. Like three dollars per egg, thirty-six dollars a dozen. And during back in gold the, rush times, during yeah, during gold rush times, yeah, yeah. And back in the city, um, eggs cost were a little cheaper, but still like a dollar per egg in again gold rush t- gold rush money. Um, and that's I uh, I did the inflation calculation in the book, and it's like four hundred to twelve hundred dollars. Per dozen eggs oh in today's money, which is outrageous. And so, because of this egg shortage, some people decided to mine the miners. And there was this guy, Doc Robinson, who is a pharmacist who had heard rumors that there were a lot of seabirds living on the um, Farallon Islands. And so, he and his brother in law got in a boat and went over there. And, you know, the Farallon Islands are small and rocky. And generally, they're inhospitable to human life, I would say. Um, but these guys managed to climb up on the slippery sea cliffs and come back with a boatload of eggs. Um, the seas were really treacherous. They lost half of their boatload, but they were still able to sell it when they got back to shore for about $3,000 in wow. um you know, in Gold Rush era money, which is something, would be something like $100,000 today. Incredible. They had been so frightened by the experience. They were so terrified. They vowed that they would never return. But word got around quickly, and within a few days, people were staking their claims on the Farallon Islands to um, to collect the seabird eggs there.
1: And, of course, they didn't do that with the... Welfare of the birds in mind. (laughs) No, no, they did not. Um,
2: The deal with uh, common muir egg, and this was the main kind of egg that was being harvested on those islands, they're maybe two and a half times the size of a chicken egg, and they've got this blood red yolk, and they uh, remain slightly translucent, even when cooked. And if you have one that's perfectly fresh, you know, you could eat it fried, it would be delicious. But if you ate an old one, the rumor said that it took you three months to get the fishy taste out of your mouth. And so for this reason, it was really important for the people um, harvesting the eggs that they get the freshest eggs possible. And so what they would do is they would um, cordon off a section of the island and they would go out and they would smash every egg they could find. Mm. And then they would harvest in that area the next day to ensure that the eggs were fresh. Um, I should also mention that there were hundreds of thousands of seabirds living on this, you know, living on these islands, and the harvest of the eggs and the just the decimation of having um, so many of their eggs smashed really wreaked havoc on the um, common muir. I believe the common muir numbers around the time that harvesting began um, were somewhere between four and 600,000 birds, and that number had dropped, you know, uh, pretty precipitously by the end. I think in the, um, in the early 1900s, the number of mirrors was like 6,000, yeah. something like that. And it's only through concerted conservation efforts that populations are beginning to come back.
1: Well, also another California connection is that uh, one of the things that made— illegal egg foraging, less profitable, was the invention of the incubator. And that that really put Petaluma on the map. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that?
2: Yes. Petaluma um, was the egg basket of the world. So uh, there was a problem with incubators. Incubators were pretty basic, Um, you know, until the end of the 1800s. They would hatch, like the best Boston incubators would hatch, like... 60% of the eggs. And there was a local dentist um, who figured out how to attach a mechanical regulator to help maintain temperature um, inside an egg incubator. And that enabled large quantities of chicks to be hatched. And so um, his partner, he died in a hunting accident, tragically, after having made this invention. And so his designing partner ended up Um, with the creation, and uh, soon the very first egg hatcheries were born, where large quantities of chicks um, were turned out. And then there were also advancements in chick sexing. Uh, It was a problem for farmers to raise birds where, you know, a substantial portion of the birds would turn out to be roosters, and roosters don't lay eggs, except in very special circumstances. And so... um, (laughs) And so chick sexing allowed the roosters to invest more in the female birds that were going to do the laying for them. Mm.
1: Well, we are talking and learning so much about the egg, (laughs) just as you heard, as an object of obsession, a commodity. Um, But I'm also hearing from a lot of listeners sharing their egg traditions, family traditions, rituals as well. The sister writes, I grew up in Germany. When I was a child, we would get together and stain eggs as well as paint them, either empty shells or hard-boiled. The hard-boiled eggs were hidden by the adults on Easter Sunday, and us kids, often me and my cousins, would go on an Easter egg hunt. Another listener tweets, Easter egg tapping. I know it as a Serbian tradition, but it's also practiced in Greece and elsewhere. Two people tap the ends of their colored eggs against each other. Only one cracks, the other is the winner. It's a favorite Easter activity for kids and adults, too. Let me go to caller Denise in Santa Rosa. Hi, Denise, you're on.
3: Hi, thanks for having me. I just wanted to say when I was a kid, my grandfather had an egg collection, and he kept it in these beautiful handmade boxes that he had padding in, and he had eggs from... Canada and West and Washington state. And they were beautiful. We were fascinated with them and he would open it up. Let us look at them. Let us touch them very carefully and talk about where he got them. If he remembered. And for us as children, it was just a special, special time And eggs have always held a place in my heart.
1: Oh, well, Denise, thanks for sharing that story. And, uh, and also just hearing about appreciating the beauty uh and then also of course in some of these comments that we got the symbolism of eggs lizzie i'd love to ask you about the cosmic egg <laughs> can you explain what you mean by cosmic egg and how this has appeared so much um in art and in religion yeah
2: sure the cosmic egg is the beginning the egg at the beginning of things And the term cosmic egg um, comes from mythologists, uh, people who study world myth, because the egg as an origin for the world is so common among world mythic traditions. And this was something that really surprised me um, as I started researching. I have always loved um, myth and story, and I read a ton of them in my youth, and I did not remember one single myth cycle that began. With an egg, Um, but they're everywhere. Uh, They're in, I found Finnish um, myths, Dogon myths, um, uh, Indian myths. I mean, they're really everywhere. It's an egg that breaks and lets out the universe, um, or an egg that contains a creator, and the creator bursts out of the egg and makes the universe. So uh, if the egg breaks to make the universe, The shell, like shell heaven associations are common, or maybe the egg yolk becomes the sun. That's a pretty usual thing to happen. Um, And a good example of that would be uh, the Finnish myth um, laid forth in the Kalevala, which is a Finnish book of myths that was collected in the 1800s. Um there's a beautiful bird that's flying over the waters and the mother of waters lifts up her knee and the bird lands on it and lays six eggs and the um, or seven eggs. And as that bird incubates the eggs, they get hot and it burns the mother of water's leg. So she moves her leg a little bit and the eggs roll down it and break and let out the world. Um, And a good example of the other one would be there are a lot of uh, their myths um, in the there's the Tahitian myth of Taura, who in one telling exists in the middle of this shell that's rotating in space. And when he bursts out of the shell, he creates the world out of himself. You know, (laughs) he gives his fingernails to be fish scales um, and his strength to become mountains and so on and so forth. Yeah. And that just it just astonished me how common it is. But when you think about it, it makes sense. You know, at first, there's this inert object that looks rather like a polished stone. And then suddenly, um, there's life. And that's magic.
1: Yeah. You talk a lot about the contradictions when it comes to eggs. For example, you describe them as precious because they can generate new life, worthless because most efforts at creation fail, so evolution makes eggs really plentiful. So they're everywhere but simultaneously invisible at the same time. And you do connect this to the way that um, we treat the status of the egg itself as really important, but not necessarily the status of the people who hold the eggs, whether it be women or hens or anything like that. Why was that such an important juxtaposition? It feels like it's it's a backdrop to a lot of your story to some degree.
2: Yes, for sure. I think that eggs are inherently valuable because they do create new life and Um, If they aren't creating new life, then they're creating some product that we're using, like our omelets. Or, you know, we're using them to do space exploration or whatever. Um, And because they're powerful, I think people have fought over them. And the natural um, people who should have dominion over eggs are the people producing the eggs, the, um, you know, the female of the species, the people with ovaries. Uh, But because eggs are powerful, other people really do want to control them. And this was really on my mind um, as the, you know, as a backdrop, as over the past few years, we've seen reproductive rights in this country become a big topic of conversation. Um, So that was very much on my mind. You know, I know how I feel about the eggs inside my own body or the eggs that were inside my own body. And the way I felt about it is that they're mine.
1: Yeah, it definitely, I could sense that, that the battle over abortion rights, the loss of Roe entered into your examination of the egg. We have a listener who's also asking if hens are being treated humanely now, not overcrowded, not so susceptible to infection. And the reality is, as much as we appreciate and enjoy even chicken eggs, we, we certainly don't treat the producer of the egg, the hen, very well in most states. That's very true. Um, Battery
2: cages are the norm in a lot of the U.S., and these are small cages, perhaps 15 inches tall, that um, might have 4 to 10 hens inside, and the hens can't do usual hen behavior like taking dust baths and preening and so on. Um, But some of the alternatives, you know, have other problems as well. Um, Here in Massachusetts, a few years back, uh, we passed a law... Um, demanding more uh, more space per hens at least vertical space in aviaries Um, but you know I mean there's a question of how when you think about the chicken that gives you your eggs like what is the picture in your head of um, the life you'd like them to lead and I think most Factory farming just doesn't meet those standards.
1: Yeah. California voters for a proposition that would ban battery cages, though that's been tied up in the courts. But it is just sort of interesting to think about as we appreciate the wonder of the egg itself. Um, we're talking about eggs. Uh, from Lizzie Stark's book, Egg, A Dozen Overtures, there are ways to consider the eggs in so many ways. The, the cultural significance of the egg. The egg is a biological perfect specimen. The egg as um, something to be obsessed over as well. And we'll have more of an egg examination after the break. Stay with us. I'm Mina Kim.
0: Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera.
1: Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Lizzie Stark, author of Egg, A Dozen Overtures. Her previous books include Pandora's DNA and Leaving Mundania. We're hearing from you, our listeners, about the role that eggs have played in your life, either in rituals or traditions, or if you have always appreciated and recognized the wonder of the egg. Samuel writes, are you kidding? I just now had a fried egg on a piece of toast before I came up to listen to Forum. I love eggs. Another listener writes, I love quail eggs. They're delicious fried. You have to cut open the shell carefully, but they are so pretty and tasty. Sarah tweets, my egg tradition was making Fabergé eggs as a young child. My neighbor was in her mid-90s. And when I was about five to six, she taught me how to make them. Decades later, I now teach my own children how to make them. Let me go to call a Ruben next. Hi, Ruben. You're on.
4: Hi. Fascinating show. Um, This reminds me of my mother when she retired. She had time to spend with me. And when I was a teenager, she'd make fried eggs with chorizo, frijoles, and tortillas de harina. They were delicious breakfasts. And then as I grew up older, my sister had hens in her backyard, and I loved them. I love holding them. They're so warm. Um, And I went to a school where the mascot is the sage hens of of all mascots of mighty hens. And uh, finally, uh, yesterday, I went to my son's school. Um, many schools, or, or several schools in SFUSD have uh, chicken coops, and parents volunteered during the holidays to go in and check in on the chickens, and I harvested five uh, green eggs and two brown ones from the chickens, and they were very happy. And like you said, they were taking a dust bath when I let them out of their chicken coop. So it's it's a wonderful world when you're with with nature. And I was thinking about what what is the importance of, of the egg you asked earlier and i think it's energy and so thank you for your for your time
1: mm, energy
2: yeah energy that's a really great way to think of it and you can use that energy to create new life or to fuel your body or to fuel your creativity i i like that a lot
1: you touched on this and i mentioned it in the billboard of this show but you had your ovaries removed when you were You were 39 and you talk about how your relationship with the egg is is fraught, while it is also joyfully obsessive that you would write a whole whole book about it. But but with respect to the fraught part, where are you (laughs) with that now, Lizzie?
2: Yeah, um, I would say my relationship to my own eggs is uh, it's still fraught. You know, I um, I come from a family with a BRCA1 mutation, which is um, a gen- an inherited genetic mutation that increases a person's risk of breast and ovarian cancer. And so I had a high risk of ovarian cancer. And so I followed the recommendations of my oncologist, which were to have my ovaries removed after childbearing was completed or before I hit 40, whichever came first. And I am really happy not to be afraid of ovarian cancer anymore because you can't get cancer and organs you no longer have. So that has brought a lot of peace to me, I would say. Mm. At the same time, I do miss the metabolic effects of my ovaries. Um, ovaries throughout a person's life, even after a person goes through menopause, the ovaries continue releasing low levels of hormones and um those have big impacts on your metabolism and mood and so on. So now I um I I miss my eggs because I'm in the full flush of surgical menopause which is like uh you know it's like regular menopause but with more cowbell. And <laughs> like a lot more cowbell. And so I could use a little less cowbell and I would I would love to uh I would love to still have my ovaries to counteract those effects but I don't I don't regret taking my ovaries out for sure I don't rem- I don't regret losing my eggs because um I lost so many I, there were there were people in my family who have died of ovarian cancer and mm. you know that's not a fate I would wish on anybody
1: yeah I'm sorry to hear that I I read about how the month you had your ovaries removed that you and your dad cooked more than 20 different egg dishes as a series of experiments. What do you think that was about?
2: Well, some of it was about, I had this idea for the book that my dad and I were going to relive our child, my childhood, uh, where we made a lot of experiments together. And, um, you know, it didn't end up turning into a chapter, but it was a beautiful way to spend time with my dad I don't actually need to write about the experiments, I, the cooking experiments I do with my dad. Just doing them is almost enough. And so it was a beautiful way to just have structured time in the kitchen with him. And we had a lot of adventures. We made something called um, an omelet Arnold Bennett, which is an omelet that has, it's a big old omelet with um, a hollandaise and smoked haddock. <laughs> <laughs> named after Arnold, Arnold Bennett, the literary figure who um, was hung over at a hotel one morning and really needed something to put on his hangover. Um, and that was delicious and fun and extremely heavy. Uh, we had it at the same meal. We had um, French president eggs, as I call them in the book, which are poached eggs encased in a meat aspic. Uh, Aspect being made of a consomme, a stock that is clarified with egg white until it's beautifully clear. And we made, we did a long tamagoyaki experiment that didn't make it into the book. Tamagoyaki is a, um, the way we made it anyway, it's a Japanese dish um, and it's a home cooked kind of vibe. There's a fancy restaurant, tamagoyaki, but like we knew better than to try that one. So, to make tamagoyaki, you need a, um, a rectangular omelet pan. And so it's great fun to, like, buy a couple of these pans and try them out. Um, it's a thin sheet of egg that you pour into the pan, and then you roll it up like a carpet. And then you pour in more of the egg mixture, and you roll it up like a carpet again. Mm. So you have this um, dense cylinder of egg and it's uh, it's trickier to make than um, than one would think. Uh, ideally, you have to like half cook these super thin sheets of egg, so that as you're rolling up the cylinder, the whole thing fuses together. Um, and we just had we had so much fun doing that. And you know, it's my dad's love language. It's his way of saying I love you. Um, and it was my way of uh, telling him that I was. Uh, okay enough to be doing these experiments. Mm.
1: Communicating uh, through making through making eggs. Let me go to caller Noreen in Oakland. Hi, Noreen. You're on.
5: Uh, I love the show. This is great. Um, Yay. I have six hands. <laughs> six happy hands. And I have a very dear friend who is an ordained priestess. And she does these rituals and Every now and then I go. I, I never know what I'm in for. And a couple of weeks ago, she did something called I Am B-O-L-C, which is a uh, ritual between winter and spring where we celebrate the womb and the egg. And I didn't know what we were going into, but we all sat in a circle and called in all the gatekeepers of the spirits, and we celebrated our wombs. And it was really fun because one gal was going through menopause, one gal had just lost a child, um, one was a very young girl. And we we kind of met minds, and it was beautiful and comforting and amazing. And I come home after several months of fallow birds because they don't lay in the winter and opened up the hutch, and if there weren't 12 eggs in there, it was just so romantic.
1: Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. And, Yeah, it's worth looking
2: up. I absolutely will. Um, I think you might enjoy uh, knowing about the ancient Romans, that the ancient Romans also used chicken for divination purposes. It used to be that they would try to interpret flocks of wild birds flying in the sky, but that wasn't very time efficient. So uh, at some point... Um, They realized that they could keep a tame flock of chickens. And unlike waiting around for wild birds, you could just consult the chickens anytime you wanted. And so there is actually a word for the sacred chicken priest, the Polarius. And the Polarius, you could go to the Polarius to consult the oracle, and he would throw food into the chicken's pen. And if they ate, the omens were good. And if they didn't eat, the omens were bad. Um, and of course, this was easily, I think it was um, e- easy to manipulate. If you starve the chickens for a while like and your boss comes to consult
1: the oracles, he's definitely going to be happy. Well, Jeff wants to know if you can discuss the structure of the shell as far as how they have influenced architecture and engineering.
2: Yeah, well, there are a few stories about that. Um, One is about the Duomo in Florence, which is a a fabulous cathedral with a domed, um, with a domed nave. And apparently um, the town held a competition to uh, figure out who was going to design the, uh, design the structure And the architect who won, um, whose name I can't think of just now, but he came in and all he did was he just put an egg down on the table and left. And he won. And that's why there's a (laughs) dome on the cathedral. Um, I mean, architecturally, there's sound. You can put quite a lot of weight on a chicken egg. Uh, Maybe you did the types of experiments I did as a school kid where... You know, you put eggs in between two bottle plastic bottle caps from a soda bottle or something like that. And then you can set weight on top of them. And they're really quite, quite strong. Um, They're really quite strong.
1: (laughs) Right. You wrote also about just how the incredible strength of ostrich eggs and how they would be used as flasks or as, you know, water canteens and things like that.
2: That's right. Enabling uh, early Stone Age people to explore um, the desert. Which blew my mind. They ostrich eggs also have pores in the shells, and that keeps um, keeps water cool when you're in a hot place. But the thing, another thing that blew my mind about these ostrich egg shell canteens, are that ancient Stone Age peoples used to decorate them by um, scratching uh, designs into them. You could think about it the way people perhaps put bumper stickers on their water bottles today. Same thing, just more. Um, more basic and archaeologists have uncovered shell fragments from those canteens that are you know 60,000 years old and count uh, those abstract patterns on the eggs as some of the earliest evidence for uh, abstract thought for humans developing abstract thought hmm.
1: Wow. We're talking about the egg in all of its different roles with Lizzie Stark, author of Egg A Dozen Overtures. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go to caller Ann and Martinez next. Hi, Ann. Thanks for waiting. You're on. Hi. How are you?
5: I wanted to well, uh, recommend that people go to Grace Cathedral and see the uh, icon of Mary Magdalene because she used an egg to represent to the Emperor of Rome uh, the Resurrection. And it was commissioned in 1988 because of the first woman bishop of the Episcopal Church, Barbara Harris. And uh, it was it's a beautiful, beautiful Middle Eastern woman holding an egg as a representative of the Resurrection. And I think people would love to see it.
1: Well— and thanks for, for recommending that. Um, Shea writes, as a trans person, I appreciate the author's trans inclusivity. Eggs can connect people across cultures and across genders. We touched a little bit on the effect of um, you having your ovaries removed. Did it change the way that you sort of connected with your own sense of your own gender, Lizzie?
2: Yeah, I, um, I feel like I'm back to my child self, in a way. Um, I'm back to uh, some of my childhood interests, and I don't have, um, like, looking cute so much on my mind. I'm more interested in, you know, like, let's get into rocks. <laughs> I, You know, my kid is collecting rocks right now, and, you know, I'm so here for it. Um, I also, I really appreciate the comment about the trans inclusive language. That was yeah. really important to me. I have a lot of trans people um, in my family. And, uh, you know, um, uh, eggs, uh, eggs aren't, aren't, the, the eggs don't make a woman, um, I guess, is all I really want to say about that. I I was also quite interested to um, read about the gender habits of chickens. So in chickens, as in most birds, the left ovary is the one that is active. Um, Most birds only have one gonad active at a time. And if that gonad gets disabled in a hen, she, in rare cases, she can become um, a can start developing like the plumage and physical features of a rooster down to crowing <laughs> right. <laughs> um, that was and,
1: incredible when you described that. She can grow chin waddles on a coxcomb, and <laughs> yes,
2: yes, yeah. and um and uh, there's, yeah, so that impressed me. And then also just that chickens have something called mosaicism, um which is where different cells of the body can uh, respond in different ways to, um the the hormones um in that body and so chickens sometimes develop a syndrome where like half of the bird looks like a cock and half of the bird looks like a hen or like you'll have a chicken where the front end um is a cock and the back end is a hen or vice versa and i just i find these stories of um uh gender expansiveness really heartening when i think about um you know, when I think about how that translates to um, our human world, like these differences in gender have been around um, for a long time, and they're not just present in humans, they're present in in other creatures as well.
1: Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, it's it's really was such a delightful and fascinating thing to read. So many of our listeners want to share their egg-as-food traditions and cooking tips. Um, Michelle writes, we've started using an Instapot electric pressure cooker to cook hard-boiled eggs, and the shells do not stick to the egg at all. They peel off super easy. Another listener tweets, savory souffles for dinner. A listener writes, my mom used to cut a hole in the center of a slice of bread and cook it in a pan, so the yolk peeked out the center. We just called it egg in the bread. But there are so many names for this dish. Bird in the nest is one. You talked about this dish too, right? <laughs> See, oh yeah,
2: yeah. We we uh my dad's my dad would cook that for his parents when um they woke up late on a morning and it was a threat. You know, my grandmother would nudge my grandpa and say, Get out of bed quick. The kids are making toad in the hole. So it was always <laughs> greasy and cold by the time they got it. Yeah.
1: Well, I got to say, reading your book, I I eat eggs, and I really wanted to, so I ended up like soft-boiling or attempting to perfectly soft-boil three eggs as I read your book. But I imagine that there may be people right now who do want to eat them, and you did do a little bit of research if you want to buy your eggs and buy the most humanely raised eggs as possible. What should they look for?
2: (laughs) They should look for something like certified humane or animal welfare approved on the label. So um, the USDA doesn't seem to do much certification of the um, circumstances in which hens are raised. So the best thing to do is really to Google one of those labels or web search one of those labels and see if the way the eggs are produced meet your ethical standards.
1: Well, Lizzie, thanks so much for egg. Do you want to just share any final thought of what you hope egg does in terms of a book that's out there in the world now?
2: Oh, I hope people have a lot of fun when they read it, because I had so much fun learning about eggs.
1: Check it out. It's Egg, A Dozen Overtures by Lizzie Stark. Thank you, Lizzie. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your egg stories. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim.